You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the middle of my journey through 2018, I found myself in a dark wood, and a little bit more literally, I found myself ready to teach Dante once more to a group of undergraduates. Between the Commedia's powerful central narrator and the ongoing inquiry into the nature of the soul, sin, redemption, and divine glory, this is a poem that I love to teach as much as any other. But Dante is a poet we best encounter alongside a teacher, someone to explain the obscure bits, to point to the right questions. Jason M. Baxter is one of those teachers, and his new book, A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy from Baker Academic, gets us ready to take on Dante, situating Dante's life and questions and literary tendencies before we cross over those dark rivers. Jason, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Jason, this book's title answers this question a little bit already, but I'd like to hear a little bit more. Uh, what sorts of people do you imagine as the main audience for this beginner's guide to the Divine Comedy? Right. Yeah, I think I think it could be used by a number of people. I had a number of people in mind when I was writing it. Um, I had in mind my present students, um, um, my undergraduates who are 19, and uh, at least where I teach, uh, the comedy has a wonderful reputation. And students get really excited about reading it because they hear from the upperclassmen about these, these different kinds of images. But the nice thing about the memory is that it sort of functions like a coffee filter, right? It sort of filters out everything <laughs> except what you really, what, what's, what's edible. And so when they actually get to the book, they're really surprised by how difficult it is, how many obscure um, people are speaking to Dante. There's a kind of a joke around here where I teach that the students say if on a quiz or an exam you don't know the right answer, just write Guido. Because there's probably some Guido talking to Dante somewhere in there. <laughs> nice. Um, and um, so I had, you know, I was thinking about those kinds of my, my students who have such good faith, such good hearts, and are excited, and they want to be, they want to be deep, they want to be profound. But but there's a lot in this old medieval work which is off-putting. Um, but I also had in mind um, some of my professional friends who have have educational bounce in the classics or reading in the great books and have since become architects or engineers or attorneys or um, physicians but like would like to spend a half hour in the evening or an hour in the evening um, getting back into something which was sort of uh, I mean I guess to use a cliche to uh, recharge their intellectual lives and and the sort of warmth of you know spiritual affections I also had in mind my um, some of the alumni of the school, again, say students who, who loved this book once upon a time and remember reading it fondly, but felt a little bit intimidated getting back into it all by themselves. So I guess with, with all these different sort of audiences in mind, the, the, the smart, intelligent, um, caring, uh, caring reader who cares about his mind and cares about his heart and his soul, um, and yet uh, is kind of, as is, is Rod Dreher put it in his in his in his version of what you said in the beginning, how, how Dante can save your life. He said he'd always thought of, of Dante as a kind of, the comedy as a kind of literary Mount Everest, um, that you admire it from afar, and part of you would like to try to a peak, a peak summit, but it seems like the sort of thing that is not for, <laughs> not for you. So I guess with, with, all of those, with all those people in mind, I, try to, I tried to create a book which would be ideal for reading in, in little book groups or also reading in a classroom. Um, we can talk about what features I think are particularly valuable for that. But yeah, th I think that's in, that's in general, that's the audience I, I had in mind when I was sitting down to write. Very good. I uh, actually had Rod on the show a couple years ago to talk about that, How Dante Can Save Your Life book. So I, I enjoy that a fair bit. That's great. Uh, well, uh, you begin this book with a uh, biography of Dante. Uh, so I want you to tell our listeners, I mean, what is the main focus of that biography? Why do we need a biography before we start this this uh, poem? And uh, what kinds of questions did you want that biography to set up for your reader before we enter the poems? Right. You know, I, I guess, you know, I, I guess one of the interesting things about the great books is that they manage to escape their own particular historical period. Um, but I mean, there are lots of there are lots of books we we read right now, 
and you know, and probably rightly so, which are going to be completely forgotten within a hundred years. And that's okay. I mean, some books we write because they're urgent, um, but most of the stuff will, that's being published, um, you know, will probably just be confined to waste baskets, right? Um, it seems like one of the neat things about the comedy is how easy how easy it, it, it could have been if something had slightly been different, that it would have been completely forgotten, just like most medieval literary text, <laughs> um, some of which are still sitting around in, in, in libraries and have never even been, you know, taken back off the page from the, the handwritten medieval manuscript they, they sleep in, right? Um, and, and that's probably for good reason. I mean, they're, they're, they're for specialist taste. They're, they're strange. So I guess, in, I guess in a way, the purpose of the biography is to show how easy it would have been for Dante to have just been an ordinary figure of his age and, and he would have been forgotten. So maybe sort of stage one is that Dante could have been just a, an ordinary love poet of the day. Again, you know, nothing nothing dates faster than, than fads. The number one song on today will probably be completely, completely forgotten 10 years from now and certainly 50 years from now. Right. It, it, the music we listen to will sound ridiculous to our kids and our kids will make fun of it. Um, I think in, in analogously, Dante's writing love lyric. He's a sort of medieval equivalent. I hope this isn't too <laughs> vulgar of a comparison, but he's the medieval equivalent to, to one of our rock stars. He's one, a smart sort of singer songwriter producing interesting variations and kind of well-known themes and achieves a lot of success in his day by doing that. If he had stayed there, um, we wouldn't be reading him as I joke. He would only be uh, being read by graduate students at the University of Chicago, um, like Guido Cavalcanti or Guido Guinizelli or Bonagiunta or any of these kinds of people. Um, and yet he tells his own story that he has a des- had a desire. Well, basically the death of Beatrice forced him to begin to work out these old traditional themes and love lyrics um, in the vernacular and take them in completely new directions. That's sort of phase one of his life, kind of disaster one. Disaster two is he, you know, the sort of the the passion of the twenties yielded to the the civic response, you know, a ladder climbing, uh, civic responsibility of the thirties. Right, his career gets going, and his career would have been successful. It seemingly he's um, he's one of the members of, Flor- of Florence's uh, democratic government, but it's a really it's a really tempestuous age. Uh, uh, more hatred than between Guelphs and Ghibellines and black Guelphs and white Guelphs than we have between our two parties today even. And he gets sort of caught up in one of these uh, in one of these internecine political struggles and his enemies take an example or take an opportunity to exile a whole bunch of their enemies. And so Dante on the road learns that he's not allowed to come back to Florence upon pain of death for the rest of his life. So this destroys his political career. Um, the death of, uh, of Beatrice had, had uh, problematized his literary career, and Dante, sort of wandering around in exile for a couple of years, engages in some political activities, does some writing. But the two treatises he's writing in this period, he both leaves unfinished, literally left off in mid-sentence. And sometime around 1306, he starts writing The Inferno. And what it looks like... Is, or at least what he wants us to think of it as, he had some sort of new, new vision, new epiphany, in which where he was able to take his old love lyric poetry and his old desire for justice within a political community and write this kind of all-encompassing spiritual vision where he didn't just sort of you know, harp on one of these two issues, but managed to present a, a vision of eternity which undergirded them. I think that's why the biography is important, uh, because it helps us. It helps us see that this was really an extraordinary s- step for Dante. In some ways, he, he he had not been able to foresee that he would have written this kind of poem when he was in his twenties or even in his early thirties. That's interesting. I mean, that blend of the political on one hand and the love lyric on the other, uh, I think maps onto the approach that you recommend in the in the opening cantos of the Inferno, namely the what you call the zoomed in and the zoomed out questions. Uh, and I like this. I mean, this is something that you know, as I said uh, here in a couple of weeks, I'm probably going to use with my own class when I teach Inferno. But 
what do these phrases mean zoomed in and zoomed out in this context and why are they so important for someone learning to read the commedia right yeah that's a great question in some ways it's there's, there's sort of a scholarly debate between american scholars and italian scholars or european scholars more generally and that uh, the kind of old debate is that american scholars like um charles singleton the sort of professor at Harvard you wish you had had if you were uh, living in the age of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, and some of his followers, like uh, a fellow at Princeton, Robert Hollander, have been really interested in, in sort of talking about the scaffolding of the poem, its theological structure, um, appropriately, um, its moral philosophy, how it uses allegory, those sorts of things, kind of zoomed out things. Whereas the Italian tradition, and to a certain extent, you know, the, the British tradition of scholarship is really interested in the individual moments, how Dante uses words, where does he get these words, um, what do these words actually make you feel and envision, and they see there's a little bit of a gap between the experience of reading the poem and the experience of thinking about it. So I think that's what I was trying to suggest in that zoomed in and zoomed out. And I, I do think it's really important to think about the poem, and it's really valuable, actually. Um, the, kind of the architecture of the poem is really extraordinary, um, and it's very valuable. I mean, I have my students, for example, um, it's kind of become you know, something of a famous assignment. They have to know, they have to be able to identify all the places, sort of the map of Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, the individual zones. And at first, of course, they complain about it. But a year or two later, what they realize is that this has given them a kind of icon of synthetic medieval thought. They sort of carry this, you know, a summa of Aquinas or the city of God from Augustine around in their brains because they have a concrete image for this thing. So this is kind of zoomed out thinking in my mind. And yet I think if we only taught it as a, as a theological text, merely a scaffolding, it would get in the way of, it would get in the way of these of how extraordinarily vibrant and urgent the poem is. Um, if you immediately move, say, for example, in Canto One of Inferno, if you immediately move to try to nail down exactly what these beasts are and what they represent, and you don't allow some ambiguity, you don't allow some psychological engagement, you don't allow a sense of the, in some sense, of the, of the pained heart of the pilgrim who's lost in this disconsolate way, perhaps suffering from something like this depression or disorientation, then you've, you've merely reduced this specimen to a museum piece rather than letting it sort of pulse and breathe with the vitality with which it's written. And so what I try to do in the book is I try to go back and forth between these things. Yeah, I, I do want to talk about the poem as a whole, and I want to frame it out, but I also want to, I want to give a sense of the vitality of the individual portraits and why these speeches matter. That's interesting. I mean, uh, if I had to predict whether European scholars or American scholars would be more individualistic in their emphasis, I would have predicted the Americans. So, I mean, in your mind, I mean, what is it that leads American scholars to focus more on the systemic and the cosmic and the theological uh, as opposed to European scholars? Because often, you know, when I think of, of European theory, especially, I think of, you know, a very political, a very systemic uh, a very global approach to things. It's probably, I mean, I'm sure a lot of it's just in part because obviously Italian scholars have have better access to the original than 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 we do. We don't, I mean, in a great books program, we don't read the original, obviously. Um, and so I think in some ways they're able to they're able to focus on the the fabric, the material of this poem, in a way which doesn't make sense for us. Um, I mean, if generally, I mean, apart from, say, like I was saying, a couple of graduate students at elite <laughs> universities, um, we read it for the ideas and we read it in translation. And I think that's good. I think that's beautiful. So I think our, our minds just sort of naturally drift more towards thinking about structures, um, whereas the Italians obviously have the luxury of reading it. And these poor high school kids in Italy do word by word to understand everything which is in there. <laughs> So I, th I think in part it's just a cultural situation, but the cultural situation created an opportunity, which actually many Italian scholars have been grateful for. So it seems to me that the best scholarship, of course, is, is that which is, which is has has the benefits of both. 
that loves to think about the poem and its, and its ambitions in the broadest possible sense, but also has real sensitivity. So I guess in, 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 my, own, in my own small way, I was, trying to, I was trying to incorporate some of the best things that, that I've read and, 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 and had a chance to, to think about and study when, uh, when I was in graduate school, these different perspectives, but, but also obviously sort of translated for a, more, um, for, for a wider audience. Very good. I, I really appreciated this section uh, early again about the inscription above Hell's Gate, uh, especially you're comparing those words to the words inscribed atop certain European churches' doors. Talk to our listeners a little bit about that tradition and how it, you know, translates into Dante's poem. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to call this book Dante's Cathedral. And um, <laughs> as, as, as you know, you don't often get to choose the title for your own book. Um, but I think that that's a really powerful image for me. Um, you have a chance to get into one of these old, old world cathedrals, then you're struck by a number of things. You're struck by the order of the sense in addition to its, its magnitude, its breadth and its height, but also just how much, um, brack there is, how much, you know, there, there are different colored stones, there are columns, there are capitals, um, there are side chapels, there are tombs everywhere in a way that you realize that it would take you at least seven years, uh, a seven-year tour to figure, figure out every single thing. I think that image is very powerful for me for the poem as a whole, is that it does have order. Um, it does have um, this architectonic structure, but at the same time, it has this extraordinary um, plurality, this um, effusiveness of detail, this abundance. So thinking about that, almost over every medieval cathedral, there are, there's, of course, a carving. There's a carving of a vision. Um, and depending what era in, you are in, is if it's more of a, an uplifting vision of glory, say in the Gothic period, or a completely terrifying vision of judgment, say in the Romanesque period, Seemingly, these things were also vividly painted. We th- in our brains, we think of them as you know a sort of cold, cold stone. Um, but they would have been painted brightly, almost looking like a South American church. And so you sort of walk under this thing with an inscription warning you: study these images, so that you will see what the fate of your soul will be. And I think the images that the medievals have this image that you're almost sort of walking into a manuscript page. You're sort of walking into the illumination. It's almost kind of something Lewis would play around with in some of his books, right? Being sort of sucked into a book. So you're not just reading it, but actually participating within this kind of dreamlike world. Um, so that kind of, you know, entering a space of a portal, which creates an environment in which the full sensibilities can be engaged, I think is really powerful. And that's so I think when the pilgrim walks into an inferno, he's either walking into a city gate He's walking from a place of disorder into a, a place of presumed justice and peace and protection. Or he's walking, it's this analogous state to walking from the, the disordered, chaotic space of the outside into the calm anticipation of the heavenly within the church. Um, so I think the irony of that, of course, is that he's walking into hell. Um, that hell is this kind of perverse cathedral. Um, it has its own kind of order, but its own broken order. Um, it has its own sort of, I don't know, par- I, I think you could say sort of parodic sacraments. Uh, the souls there are trying to reperform activities in their life ritualistically and repetitively to try to get some sort of meaning out of it, some sort of sanctification. But of course, these are, you know, in, in the medieval terms, these are dead sacraments, this meaningless ritual. Um, and so I think one of the powerful things about walking into hell is, is that it's, it's, a, it's a diabolical church. It's, um, it's a broken church. It's, it's, a, it's a warped cathedral. It's a cathedral in ruins in a way. So I think, I think that, that Dante really plays around with that idea. In some sense, God is extremely, is extremely close, even in Inferno, right? Almost sort of you know, quoting a line from the Psalms, even if I go down to shale, you are there. And yet, really far away at the same time, though close in some sense in terms of 
his being in terms of even perhaps his love to the sinners. The sinners are infinitely far away in their hearts to the point they don't acknowledge him. So it's just a really extraordinary paradox. Um, and maybe one really good for us to think about that though God seems a million miles away from hell, um, he's actually in the, in the fabric of everything except the sinners, maybe sometimes like us, just too blind to recognize his nearness. Well, very good. I want to focus on uh, one of those sinners and one of those paradoxes that I'll, I'll confess has troubled me over the years and I liked your take on it. Uh, but when you describe Farinata, one of the soul-denying shades, the heretics, you describe him as a true magnanimo, and you really take on one of the true difficulties, like I said, that I have with the Inferno, namely how some shades seem to retain their composure while others kind of disintegrate in the face of the terror of hell. So talk to our listeners about magnanimity as a virtue and why it even makes sense for this particular Aristotelian virtue to persist among some of the damned. Yes. There are a number of souls that, when you read them, I guess, in, in that what we were talking about, that zoomed-up way, that your immediate impression is one of awe. I mean, if you read Francesca, you know, right after you say finished watching a good romantic comedy, you think, oh, this is so beautiful. I wish, uh, you know, I, I can't believe that this kind of love, this heroic, brave love will wind up in hell. Um, similarly, if you read Ulysses um, in Canto 26 of Inferno, Ulysses talks about courage and bravery and virtue and knowledge and exhorts his crew not to be mere animals, but to achieve the fullness of their human potential. And that canto, almost say like a movie scene, just sort of fades out. And so you're left with this impression of a tremendously powerful soul of Ulysses. And part of you wonders, why is he down here if he's such a good, good individual? So I think, you know, Farinata is similarly sort of, um, similarly sort of magnanimous. Um, the problem is you can love one thing, even a good thing, and you can love it triumphantly and heroically. I think the point about, I think the exciting point about the Inferno is that all of Dante's souls love too little. You meet Francesca, and it feels sort of, uh, you know, kind of hot and passionate. But in light of paradise, her love seems tepid and cool. Um, she didn't, she only loved one thing, Paolo. And thus, her problem is not that she loved too much, but she loved too little. So I think analogously with Farinata, I think Dante really admires the man. Um, I, mean, I think he thinks of him almost kind of, you know, like we would think of a Washington Right, he's he's this fearless general, right, who assembles his men and is always uh, and is heroic and sacrificing. The problem is, he only loved one thing, his party, um, and he loved it to the exclusion of everything else. So, so that fascinatingly, you could have, I mean, you could imagine. I suppose we could even imagine, say, you know, a great Republican senator, or take your pick if you're on the other side, right? The great Republican senator who is a genius for crafting bills and negotiation and has, an, you know, um, an unimpeachable character or something like that. Um, it, in some sense, what will be heroic to us could be a fault within him if that's the only thing that he can love is his party and a single instantiation of justice. He doesn't love he doesn't love the good itself or justice itself, but rather his own particular ability to instantiate a particular vision of it. That's what I think is sort of at the heart of the fascinating mystery of Farinata. That's why we admire him so much. Um, is because he really was a good, powerful, smart, prudent individual. Um, but Dante's surprise, I think, is Right, it's sort of, as I think I put it in one of the subtitles, uh, family values in hell. <laughs> right, it's, right. <laughs> it's, it's possible to even love a good thing idolatrously. And I think that's the big shock with Dante. And one of the other interesting things, and I feel like I spend a lot of my time trying to get my students to wrap their minds around this, uh, is the strange hierarchy of crimes in the Inferno. So... You know, my students always ask, you know, how is it that someone who merely flatters the powerful 
uh, comes after a tyrant who murders hundreds of human beings. And when you respond to that question in this book, your response has to do with words and with reproduction. And I'd like our listeners to get a little taste of it so they can buy your book and read it in full. So talk about words and reproduction for a moment in the context of fraud. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it's so first of all, Dante's being pretty, pretty daring here. Um, his, some of his contemporary medieval authorities like Thomas Aquinas would say that sins of sins of force are worse than sins of fraud. And that's kind of how we think too, right? I mean, I jokingly say that Dante doesn't put white collar criminals and, you know, in, in one of those you know, minimum security prisons where they get access to Reader's Digest abridgments and so forth, right? But he actually puts them in maximum security prison in a way that's really contrary to us. And if I, sometimes I, you know, half-jokingly put it this way to my students. I say that Dante thinks that photocopying a $20 bill and trying to spend it at the local grocery store is worse than getting in a drunken barroom fight um, and hitting someone with a pull cue. And that doesn't doesn't strike us as as correct. But I think, you know, if you think about sort of Dante's commitment to the intellectual life and also his commitment to language, he believes that we have a sacred obligation, not just to not sin, but to describe truth in terms which are beautiful. Dante believes that if we don't actually describe the truth in a way that makes it desirable for other people to possess, then we haven't even begun to describe it. And he feels a sort of sacred obligation to do this. And so if I, with my words, give a picture of reality which dilutes it, which doesn't allow it to stand in its full and awesome value, I've really stolen something. I've stolen a reason to live. I've stolen a sense of beauty. I've stolen an ability to, to love something, um, which is extraordinarily devastating. Um, I think, I think the, the film, say, uh, the German film that came out a couple of years ago, The Lives of Others, is kind of a fascinating reflection on this. You know, obviously the, the sort of the main, you know, secret police officer has a kind of conversion and allows the resistant artist not to get in trouble. And then, of course, the film ends um, in after the fall of the Berlin Wall, in which that secret police officer now is sort of delivering just sort of advertising, you know, advertisements as, as, as a postman. It seems like the, the, the striking thing about the film is that it, it asks this really excellent question, what is freedom for? What is it good for? What do I do with it? Not just freedom from something, but freedom to do something. And I think that's, I think that's again, Dante's power, is that he, he forces us to, to think about our obligation to language, even say to beauty, that if we fail to present truth and justice and the other virtues in a way which makes people desire them, we'll just be sort of mere hollow people conserving and preserving things which we know we ought to do and no longer feel a sense, a sense of, a sense of delight in trying to do them. Very good. I'm, I'm reminded of a, Stanley Hauerwas's essay, Honor in the University, where he makes the controversial claim that for those engaged in teaching and learning, cheating is a more serious crime than murder, and how people, you know, respond understandably, you know, to that, uh, that he's got it, you know, completely reversed, but, uh, you know, that's one of those uh, Dantean thought experiments, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I would be curious to know if Dante's sort of shadow of influence is somewhere involved in that, in that statement. In in that essay, he never mentions Dante, but he does in a number of his other writings. So I think he is, uh, as Howarth tend to do, playing games with the writer, with the reader. Pardon me. Yes. Well, I think you know. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. It's fascinating. Is that when we sit in a classroom, a lot of times students don't don't feel that what they're doing is, is very important, or they think that their obligation is to is to learn a number of correct opinions, oftentimes which they don't expect to remember beyond the semester. Um, I think Dante would like to, um, but think about that. Even if you spend the rest of your life being a good citizen and say even you know a good a good parent and a good friend, there's I think Dante would you know would would warn us, maybe even shock us, and say 
is that a potentially hollow existence is sort of mere performance of the duties um, not enough. There needs to be some sort of, you know, passion and animation. There needs to be some sort of vision. And so I think that's why he can come down so hard on that. So the, the flatterers, you're right, you're referring to the, those, those deep pits in hell, the Malabolge. I tend to think of them, say, as, as the political science student, right, from an Ivy League school. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with Ivy League schools. But the political science student, the ambitious one from, uh, from, from a school, which helps, the, which helps Frank Underwood get elected and retain his power. <laughs> that individual who will, say, who will say anything that needs to be said, either to the ruler or to the people he's ruling, in order to maintain power, it doesn't seem like it at first because he's so neat and clean and wears $1,000 suits. But if you begin to think about it, you realize that his sort of you know, insulation of empty, um, sterile, and infertile words is really sustaining extraordinarily unjust, unjust circumstances because he's afraid. He's afraid to speak truly. So in that way, even though at first, you know, you know, a couple of, you know, what's, what's wrong with the, the, the PR salesman of words who, you know, stands up at a press conference and says a bunch of baloney, which neither he nor the press believes. Well, in some sense, he's creating the sort of the necessary insulation to support, you know, um, what, which, which, which creates conditions in which injustice can flourish. I think Dante sees that. Okay. Well, I want to turn to uh, purgatory here, and I, I want to note that your book provides some really good historical background on purgatory, not only in Dante's vision, but also as a church teaching. Uh, and I'd like to hear, I'd like our listeners, pardon me, to hear about some of the earliest roots. So why should a reader of Dante be aware of the shepherd of Hermas? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's actually, that's pretty uh, an autobiographical moment there. Um, I mean, I remember as a college student while well, I wasn't Catholic and not believing in purgatory. I remember reading some of these, some of these old uh, church documents um, and beginning to think, wow, if, uh, if so, if so-and-so was writing this before 200 AD, I don't know if that's enough time to, for a doctrine to be corrupted. And I remember finding it really challenging. Um, yeah. So, you know, the shepherd of Hermas is, um, is, an important kind of visionary treatise, which was had, which the early church seemingly had a strong regard for, to the point that it was a legitimate debate of whether or not it would be included as canonical scripture. It's not, of course, um, but yeah, it, there there is a line which I, I quote in my book, in which in the vision that the shepherd asks um, sees a tower being built, and some of the stones are thrown away because they're faulty. And uh, the tower is built out of these quote, righteous stones. And he asked if some of the faulty stones, if in any way, can be used. And the angel in this vision says, yes, some of them will be able to be used if they've been sufficiently purified. Um, if you, and then explains that basically there will be um, a period after, uh, in the afterlife. And we don't exactly know what this is. And, you know, Different ages have defined it differently, and it's probably good that way. That uh, will it be that, say, in a single instantaneous encounter with Christ, that our own limitations, our own failures of love, will feel intensely painful in the light of his eyes? Will that sort of internal guilt to have failed and not lived up to, to our calling Will that be the fire which purifies? Will it seem like a thousand years of punishment just in the intensity of the moment? Um, so I think it's this fascinating. And then, of course, uh, Paul, in one of his letters to the Corinthians, also refers to uh, the wood, the hay, and the stubble. If we try to build with those things, it will be burned away. But there will be other kinds of, other kinds of sort of building materials, presumably by this means, authentic acts of love, authentic acts of faith and hope, um, which will sustain a purifying and scorching fire. Um, and yeah, if you, if you look, every testimonies throughout the first 1,000 years that, that there was a constant sort of meditation on, well, what if I'm, what if I'm saved? 
but don't really spend my life in uh, in love uh, or in working authentically for faith. And so Dante is just, I think, at the end of a 1300 years of various reflections on this. Well, good, good. One of Dante's just pure inventions in the Commedia is the conversion of Stadius. And your account of Stadius as an analog to Dante himself is quite good. So walk through that analogy to us. If Stadius is to Virgil, then Dante is to whom? Yeah. Yeah, so I, you're, you're right to pronounce it with the, the Latin pronunciation. I'm going to go ahead and say Statius. Okay, I, I was taught by a Virgilian, so... Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to anglicize it. Um, yeah, I think... So, I, yeah, there's some really interesting moments. Um, Statius has, is an epic poet and has admiration for his teacher, an epic poet, Virgil. And, of course, Dante has been led by Virgil throughout all this. Dante has the audacity to, to name himself one of the, the top six best poets ever. Uh, and uh, in Inferno 4. Um, but what's really interesting is just a couple of Conti after Statius confesses his, his admiration for Virgil in very beautiful terms. Um, Dante Pilgrim confesses his admiration for a kind of fatherly figure who's a vernacular poet, a Guido Guinicelli. Dante sort of sets up this parallel that Statius is to the epic poet Virgil as Dante is to the, the vernacular love lyric, um, love lyric poet Guido Guinizelli. Now, I don't think Dante, that's in some sense, that's where Dante begins. That's Dante's history. And in part, one of the many stories being told in the comedy is how the love lyric poet, the vernacular love lyric poet Dante, also becomes an epic poet. And in a way, if you think about it, I mean, even something is, say, trivial as, I don't know. <laughs> You know, the, the, the number one uh, rock song which you your voice when you're in a car but would be embarrassed that people knew that you listened to it, right? For whatever reason, uh, the melody, the word, those kinds of things have a kind of, have a kind of lyrical or emotional power which when the mind begins to analyze the lyrics, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't seem founded in a way. Um, the epic poetry in some sense is the exact opposite. It's the, the high poetry of the human heart that's challenging and difficult and takes literally weeks to read through. So I think what Dante's trying to do is literally trying to create a kind of mode of writing which has never been created before, an epic which has all of the, the big cosmic descriptions of the world that has gods mingling with the humans, which has human heroes who have tremendous ambitions to become godlike with the intensity of encounter, that kind of IU moment that lyric has. So I think the story of Statius, especially so closely parallel to Dante's own uh, description of his reverence for his Guido Guinizelli, is really important because it helps us work out a kind of poetic genealogy for Dante in which he wants to claim um, both of these literary traditions as uh, being responsible for the confluence of his own poetry. Very good. Now, I understand that any commentary on the Commedia has to be selective to stay inside of one volume, but one noticeable omission in your book is any sort of image-by-image -image reading of Dante's apocalypse at the end of the purgatory. I've seen editions of Dante in the footnotes go into some detail about Holy Roman emperors and Babylonian captivities and all sorts of things about Con Grande, uh, what about the process of, of making this book led you away from those kinds of political allegories? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think I think probably more could have been said on it. Maybe that was one of those moments in which I felt a zoomed-in approach was better. Uh, because on multiple occasions, the pilgrim confesses that he doesn't have any idea of what's going on. Um, he's really confused by it himself. And every time he asks Beatrice for an explanation, she gives him a description which only, only makes things more difficult and more confusing. Um, I think I wanted to do justice to that. It seems like, I, I, I think it's a good thing to do. But it seems to me if you rush too quickly towards, uh, oh, of course, this means this, and this means that, and this means this, then you kind of lost at least the whole sensibility of 
the searing, fulsome, terrifying, numinous vision that Dante has. Um, I think that that for me was really important. That's really important, for, you know, for me um, and my students, is that they're left with a, a sense of awe and complete surprise of expectations. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, I, I'm reminded, you know, my my doctoral work was in uh, English Renaissance literature, and I always got a little bit impatient with people who would read uh, Spencer's Fairy Queen and come away saying, well, obviously this is just the Earl of this and that and the Duke of this and that yeah. and their love right. affair behind the back of the Duchess of this and that. And I thought, no, this right. is a, this is an allegory. This is, <laughs> this is much bigger right. than that. Yeah, right, exactly. It's, it's, yeah, if, if you sort of merely translate it into those you know, one-to-one correspondences, then you've lost what Dante Scar sometimes called the the polysemia dantesca, that is the polysemous nature of Dante's text. It's it's it, the fact that he loves to include multiple images and allusions and build these sort of complicated, dense, voluminous moments. And yeah, I think it seemed it seemed to me if I guess uh, you know if you could only have one encounter, I think I'd like the first encounter of that to be you know what. Um, Rudolf Otto called A Sense of the Numinous. Very good, very good. Um, I want to commend your apologia for Paradiso as you turn the corner into the last canticle. Um, I've been a reader for some years who finds Paradiso compelling reading, if only we're willing to let the text interrogate us rather than stand in judgment over it. And what's especially good about that case for Paradise that you present is that you start with a primer on mystical Christian theology. So talk to our listeners for just a moment about the medieval theology that's handy to know when you start into the Paradiso. Mm. Wow. What a, what a question for uh, <laughs> the last few minutes of the interview. Um, yeah, so I think, well, Dante's a poet, and so he spends Paradiso doing a couple of things he begins with an invocation of Apollo. This kind of image of inspiration in antiquity. Whatever Virgil had, whatever Ovid had, whatever Homer had, I want that too, please. Give me some of that. I need a facility with words. But I need to use words in a bold, daring kind of way in which they reach, in which they they say things in unexpected ways, which makes you feel like you've heard something for the first time, even if you have believed it for 15 years. I mean, so part of Paradiso One is is dealing with this sort of poetry, this this idea of inspiration and classical inspiration. But at the same time, what's really interesting is that you're the poet who's just got done having written, you know, three or four hundred pages now begins to wonder whether or not language is is even adequate to describe reality at its truest. And so I think this is where where Dante begins to to border on mystical theology, um, which he could have got from any number of places. There are moments in Augustine, um, there's some 12th century authors like Richard of St. Victor, whom Dante admired very much. Um, There's a Byzantine theologian, uh, very platonic, by the name of Dionysius, the Areopagite. Um, there are dozens and dozens of, of, of texts which seemingly inspired Dante in one way or another, a Bonaventure or the Franciscan tradition. But basically what all of them have in common is a reflection on um, the ineffability of God, by which we mean because God is is the source of reality, he's the cause of reality, and not an effect of it. It means that it's, it's it's problematic philosophically, linguistically, when you try to use language which describes the effects to describe the cause. And we have to recognize that there's a gap between our words, what we can say about God, and what the reality ultimately is. And so the mystical tradition is concerned with overcoming this gap because in the Christian tradition, unlike in certain Gnostic traditions, this God, despite the fact that he is uh, ineffable, despite the fact that we can only use our language in a limited way to talk about him, still wants to know us. And in some sorts, makes all these sort of desperate efforts throughout history to, I mean, the incarnation as well as just think of the story of Israel, 
um, in order to, to be known. And so the mystical tradition is concerned with how to overcome this gap of ineffability, um, that it first of all wants to sort of bring an awareness to the limited, to the limited nature of our words, so that God in some ways is sort of uncaged from the prison of our language. Uh, in our imaginations, he's, he's allowed to be, to be wild again, if I may, um, to be scorching and searing and, um, and magnificently beautiful. And then the mystical tradition is concerned with, okay, well, if you can't necessarily speak about God um, with perfect unanimity between our words and what's being described, then how do you come and know him? What kinds of faculties does the human soul possess which need to be illumined and awakened? How is this related to prayer? So Dante, I think, sort of drags in, even in Paradiso One, all these really interesting meditations on words, their, their uh, effectiveness as well as their limitation. And what do you do when you come up to a reality which you begin to sense is on the periphery of language? How do you sort of make that leap from language into a reality which is bigger, brighter, um, burns and cuts with, uh, with an intensity which our language just can't, can't control? So it seems to me when you, when you begin to realize that Dante is writing a kind of poetry which is meant to point to realities which are beyond language, then all of a sudden you can be a little bit more patient with Dante in Paradiso, recognizing the extraordinary ambition of what this poet is trying to do. Very good, very good. I want I want our listeners to hear about your musical image here as you're discussing the Paradiso, namely that the Commedia as a whole moves from the cacophony of Inferno to a monophonic song in Purgatory to polyphonic symphony in Paradiso. Um, why have you found this this musical schema uh, helpful for enjoying Dante? Yeah, I think it's a really it's a really powerful insight. It's not mine. It's uh, I've borrowed it from Fra- Francesco Ciabattoni, who's a Dante scholar, in his book Dante's Journey to Polyphony. Um, but Ciabattoni points out, I think, really quite convincingly, that every allusion to hell is to broken instruments or failed music. For example, there's a really powerful image of the of the solon. Those who in life had this kind of dull sense of anger that they hadn't been given the kind of life that they wanted. Um, Well, in hell, they really are doing what they ought to have been doing in life, that is, singing hymns of gratitude. But these hymns are, since they're lying under this, in a a sort of muddy creek, there is the gold name and the creaking, the sort of muddy bubbles. And so it's a failed, it's a failed hymn. Um, On the other hand, you have all kinds of allusions to hymns and songs, all of which are taken in parodic directions or are incomplete or misunderstood. In Purgatorio, though, um, all, this, all the souls sing in unison. They sing that si- simple Gregorian chant called Monophony, which only has one melodic line, and all the voices have to um, correspond to one another. And if you think about that, it's actually brilliant. Um, the souls who spend too much time worrying about how to achieve their own, you know, personal personal happiness, maybe even not necessarily wickedly, but just self-obsessed, now actually are forced to consider their own being as part of a group, as part of a community. And so the, the Gregorian chant, the monophony, represents this kind of unity which they're striving for, which requires the temporary discipline of even my own good individualistic desires. But finally, of course, paradise, Paradiso, when the souls have arrived there, have reachieved the good of their individuality um, while participating in the group. And so seemingly, Chabatoni points out, they're all singing polyphony. Polyphony, of course, being when you have multiple melodic lines woven together. Um, a couple hundred years later, this is going to become Palestrina, or maybe even most dramatically, one of my favorite pieces, um, Thomas Tallis's Spem and Olium, which is a 42-part motet. 
it's extraordinary to see to see the thing performed um where the groups of singers move all throughout say that you know throughout say like a college chapel or something like that and the sound is emanating from all possible directions and but but works together but in an extraordinary complicated way so it sounds like the sort of um the undulations of, uh, of of an ocean. My vision of Dante's Paradiso is of a one million or a one billion part motet, in which every soul is singing in its own peculiar way, and it's based on its own individuality, its own insights, in a way, its own character, is singing a unique hymn. But all these hymns, now that we've practiced monophony <laughs> down in Purgatorio, are sort of miraculously, magically woven together, such that my, my old... Um, my old individualistic voice now fine now makes a contribution to the polyphony of paradise. Very good, very good. Well, Jason, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. Uh, as we head for the door here, what would you want our listeners thinking about the Commedia, Dante, poetry, or whatever else? Yeah, what a great question. It seems to me maybe the the last thing to to leave your listeners with is that though the poem is difficult because as seven hundred years have elapsed since the time it was written um, it's it's still it's still extraordinarily urgent it feels vital if you're willing to to dig a little bit and be patient and maybe even reread a little bit maybe take it you know in small bits and pieces at a time. I think you'll discover something which is vitally fresh and causes you to rethink your own experience and see things, perhaps for the first time, even if you believed it for the past 30 years. Jason Baxter, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you. I'm really grateful for the invitation. Listeners, thank you for downloading. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press, press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.